You know, even in normal times outside of this COVID-19 pandemic, muscle plays a central role in immunity and recovery and overall health because really many patients are at risk for muscle loss, especially those with advancing age or acute and chronic conditions. And often a person's lean body mass is an important factor that can have a strong influence on quality of life and physical function, especially when struggling with an illness or working toward recovery. And that's just in normal times, but let's face it, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. Things aren't normal yet. Maybe they won't be for a while. And so our focus on COVID-19 continues. We're talking today about the role muscle can play in clinical practice with COVID-19 as our context. And we have a lot to cover. So with me today are three experts on this topic. We'll start with Dr. Laura Matteris, who is Professor of Medicine, Gastroenterology, Hepatology and Nutrition at East Carolina University. Dr. Jerry Mullen, a board-certified internist and associate professor of medicine, who also serves as the director of integrative GI nutrition services at the John Hopkins Hospital. Dr. Rafat Hagazi, the head of global medical affairs and director of scientific and medical external engagement at Abbott. So that's a mouthful. So welcome to you all today, and we are so grateful that you're here. Well, hello, everyone. It really is a pleasure and a privilege for me to be here and to share this virtual podium with such distinguished faculty. I think it's going to be a very interesting discussion. Yes, likewise. It's uh, very exciting to be here, and I am looking forward to the discussion as well. And I would say exactly the same. Thank you so much for connecting us, Maura, with two esteemed uh, experts and leaders in the field. I wanted to say one quick note for our listeners. This podcast recording will probably sound a little different than you're used to hearing, and that's because we're all still social distancing. So Dr. Matteris, Dr. Mullen, Dr. Hagazi, and I are all dialing in for today's discussion rather than sitting in the studio. So, all right, with all that said, I'm hoping I can talk you all into telling us a little bit about yourself. So your current role, what brought you to where you are in your career, and those types of things. So Dr. Matteris, would you mind starting? Well, um, I am a professor at the Brody School of Medicine at East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. I've held a number of positions uh, beginning at the University of Cincinnati and then the Cleveland Clinic then the Starzl Transplant Institute at the University of Pittsburgh, and uh, all that before moving to Greenville. The bulk of my career has been in nutrition support. I then moved into the area of intestinal rehabilitation and intestinal transplant. In addition to my GI practice here, my current position has allowed me to expand my practice and research efforts into obesity and exercise physiology, as well as care of patients with HIV. Well, it's, a, it's an interesting story because it um, started out in the laboratory at the NIH uh, doing basic immunology, and then when I uh, moved to New York, it became more of a uh, faculty which was more geared towards inflammatory bowel disease basic research. But from there, I had a personal interest in nutrition, and then I pursued a master's uh, level education. After a, a good year and a half of uh, education in that direction, I took that back to my hospital in New York and actually applied it in the uh, clinical setting and also in the hospital setting and eventually 
led a nutrition support team, developed a nutrition committee. And at that point, back in the late 90s, I had a strong interest in mitigating malnutrition when it wasn't really in vogue and carried that uh, over to Johns Hopkins in a uh, unique experience, both in complementary integrative medicine nutrition, but also, again, looking at malnutrition and mitigating malnutrition in the uh, hospital setting and now and for the last 10 years here at the Nutrition Advisory Committee there. Fantastic. Thank you. And Dr. Nagazi. Thanks, Mara. Yes, I'm a physician science by training. My journey started, uh, I graduated from Mansoura uh, University in Egypt, 1989. And I started my uh, clinical career as actually a surgery resident. But I discovered very soon that I am into uh, reading and writing manuscripts and publications and doing clinical research. So I switched that. And I got a Master of Occupational Medicine at the University of Mansoura Faculty of Medicine before I went to University of Pittsburgh uh, in 1996, where I had my Master of Public Health and PhD studying nutrition and epidemiology. And I stayed in Pittsburgh. I did my postdoctoral fellowship in GI immunology at the GI division at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. And I then uh, joined the clinical faculty in Pittsburgh as uh, an attending staff uh, overseeing the GI Nutrition Council. And very interestingly, I did work with Dr. Mataris at uh, seeing some patients of hers, and she sees the patient of mine. Then I moved to Abbott as a medical director before I, I now uh, assumed the responsibility of the head of global medical affairs and external engagement team. Uh, really working on developing new um, products for patients that addresses the nutritional needs for a variety of patients from disease-related malnutrition to diabetes and metabolic syndrome. I'm very involved in education as well, definitely working with the Abbott Nutrition Health Institute, uh, trying to promote best practices and, and, and uh, superb nutrition education for our peers of, of physicians and dietitians and other healthcare professionals as well. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much to you all for sharing your background. As we all know, we're in the middle of a pandemic with COVID-19, and I wanted to start by asking how this is impacting your clinical practice and the way you're caring for patients. Dr. Matarese, do you mind starting us off? Well, these certainly are challenging times. Um, as far as research, all of my clinical research trials have been suspended, at least temporarily. The patient care has become more complex, or at least in, in my opinion, it has. We're trying to do most of it via telemedicine, but clearly there are some patients that I must see in person in the clinics. We're trying to screen those patients and really limit this as much as possible and move more toward uh, telemedicine. So I would be interested to hear what Dr. Mullen is doing as well. Yes, we've uh, also moved you know, much of our clinical operation to telemedicine, but we still have a frontline presence in the hospital. And uh, at Hopkins, we've become a bit overwhelmed with COVID. We've become more of a COVID hospital. And uh, although not as bad, uh, as you would see in New York, we do have the convention center that we use uh, for patients, um, much like the convention center in New York has done for their patients. And here it's been a good question about whether, uh, you know, these patients come in 
particularly malnourished, and if there's ways that we can mitigate that, um, has been on my radar of late. So in terms of the nutrition care being provided to your patients, how is COVID-19 impacting how we're providing optimal nutrition support? Well, that's a good question. I would say that uh, there are some challenges that uh, we'll likely uh, discuss um, around the table. And that is that there are, um, are limitations with appetite. People are coming in malnourished from not only lack of intake, from lack of appetite, but also there is an enteropathy associated with COVID-19. And we're seeing more and more of an emerging scene that those who have GI symptoms do worse and they present later in the course and they actually have a higher mortality with, with complications. So it's raising questions, and we know that SARS-CoV-2 does involve the gut and other organs, is that, you know, is there a way that we can mitigate, again, the enteropathy associated with uh, SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19? And um, there's also challenges with feeding in the ICU with proning. We know that um, the ventilation down to the lower bases of the lungs is improved when patients are prone, and uh Feeding these people can be challenging because of that, uh, at least enterally. So we have uh, two challenges. One, that patients are coming in the hospital um, with a, what appears to be a higher prevalence of malnutrition, which um, we have not seen papers on that quite at this point, to my knowledge, but uh, we are considering that. And then two, uh, what can we do to really um, circumvent the limitations and challenges in feeding patients because of proning and also because of the enteropathy associated with this condition. And what are your thoughts, Dr. Matteries? Well, we are looking at our data, our COVID patient data on a regular basis, and um, most of our patients, about 80% are African-American, they're obese, so body with an average body mass index of 33 um, and the average age is 60, um, and a very high-risk population for malnutrition. I think the biggest problem is that we have very little data regarding the safety and efficacy of nutrition in interventions for COVID-19. In addition, I think there are likely three phases of nutrition intervention. The acute ICU phase, the non-acute COVID-positive patient, and then the post-ICU hospital discharge phase. And that's where um, our rehabilitation efforts are going to be required. There are various protocols that have been proposed, including the use of vitamin D, zinc, ascorbic acid, but the data are limited, basically non-existent. Um, there are a number of trials that are underway. Uh, you can go to clinicaltrials.gov and look at them. Last time I checked, there were over 20 underway or at least registered. But at the moment, the exact way to feed these patients, the timing, the duration is still um, unknown. So with so many patients still in the ICU and on ventilators and being bedridden for extended periods of time, how is this impacting their overall muscle mass and muscle health from what you've seen? Well, um, we know that prolonged ICU stay and hospitalizations are associated with loss of body weight and in particular lean body mass. 
And many of these patients continue to lose weight after discharge with a progressive loss of function. And we've already seen reports of extreme weight loss and muscle loss um, in the COVID patient post-discharge from the hospital, especially if they've had a prolonged hospitalization where they've been bedridden for any length of time. So I think these issues will have to be addressed uh, in the COVID patient population. Um, Dr. Mullen, what have you seen? I agree with you about the rehabilitation being a challenge and not really getting enough attention, uh, quite honestly, because of those who do survive, they're quite beat up physically, psychologically, mentally, and nutritionally. And that type of rehabilitation really takes a concerted effort. And I don't, I don't see that being done at this point. So, so I, I think that the fact that any inflammation-associated diseases put patients under um, a tremendous amount of risk of muscle loss. And, and the intricate association between acute and or chronic inflammation and muscle loss has been really highlighted in an, probably one of the major advances that happened in our field within the last few years. And you start to see inflammation as a requirement of diagnosing malnutrition in both Aspen and A&D uh, guidelines and then the GLIMS criteria for diagnosing undernutrition. So for COVID-19 patients, definitely there's tremendous amount of inflammatory stress and cytokine storm that uh, could lead to severe muscle wasting that probably will not be addressed within a few days of nutritional intervention. It's actually a long period of, of recovery that requires intensive nutritional therapy. So why does this loss of muscle matter so much? We know it complicates the care for patients in their recovery, but can you describe how? First of all, there is no disease or clinical condition that actually benefits from a malnourished state, but many that can benefit from appropriate nutrition interventions. We know that loss of lean body mass is a particular concern. And it's difficult to replenish muscle once it is lost. And this reduced muscle mass is associated with impaired physical function and frailty. And that's related to increased morbidity and mortality. I've already seen a few photographs like on cable news networks and social media of patients who were discharged after prolonged hospitalization. These are COVID patients and the loss of not only body weight, but lean body mass is really impressive. So I think we're going to have some challenges um, in the repletion phase. We know that muscle is a structural uh, organ. It, it supports the maintenance of the structure of the body. But muscle is much more than that. Muscle is an important metabolically active and homeostatic organ. It is the source of all these amino acids that we depend on in acute uh, illness, in critical illness, to support our metabolism. All these amino acids are actually fuel source for immune cells. So it's considered muscle as a reservoir of amino acids that are stored there to help when uh, conditions become critically ill, and that's why we get the loss of muscle mass associated with acute illness. But also, it's a major endocrinological organ 
is it's very important in glucose homeostasis and insulin resistance, for example, because it's a major uh, pool for blood glucose. And the more we know about the muscle, even the muscle quality and its association with insulin resistance, uh, the more we realize how important muscle is during critical illness. It's interesting that uh, muscle is a physiological contributor to an anti-inflammatory process and that when we optimize, we know from exercise physiology, when we optimize muscle mass, we can actually help attenuate inflammatory attacks. So in a setting of loss of lean body mass, uh, you're less apt to contribute to that process and also you're more susceptible to an inflammatory attack as well. So that's why when we see the elderly who are incredibly sarcopenic, their outcomes are much poorer because of their decreased ability to really take a hit from uh, any infectious entity, particularly an aggressive virus like this. For patients with COVID-19 who have lost muscle mass, what can we do for them nutritionally? For instance, are there specific nutritional interventions or specific nutrients or ingredients that can benefit them both early during ICU admission and also post-discharge? Well, I think we all would agree that an HMB supplement would make a lot of sense uh, for those in particular who are sarcopenic to uh, preserve the lean body mass that's available. You know, we're seeing more and more attention paid to the GI issues with this condition, so it's more than just respiratory um, that may be contributing. I agree with what Dr. Mullen just stated. And um, as a dietitian, I certainly would have to say that I think food is best. But when patients can't eat enough for repletion, which I think is the case in many of these COVID patients, then we need to do something extra and oral nutrition supplementation may be of benefit. And uh, I know Dr. Mullen and I have discussed this. I, I'm intrigued at the idea of providing an oral supplement with HMB to try and increase the muscle mass and function in these patients. I think that there's enough data out there to suggest that with HMB and good nutrition that we could probably increase muscle mass and function. Yes, I totally uh, concur what Dr. Mullen and Dr. Matavis have alluded to that for us to um, decrease gradation that happened with acute illness, high protein, um, high protein first, and then high protein or nutritional supplement, especially in the early phases, or high protein enteral feeding formulation. And then there is the specific nutrients like HMB, for example. Those are actually all intervention that helps decrease the, the impact on the muscle especially with the acute illness. I just want to highlight that, yes, food is the best. I totally agree with Laura, but for those patients, especially with infection, there is something very uh, well known in the medical community called anorexia of infection. And that means like the appetite suppression for patients with infectious diseases. So I think there is now in 2020, we have more uh, science that alludes to that we have actually since certain ingredients that can help with this illness. And I totally agree on uh, HMB in addition to the high protein. I know there isn't much research on COVID-19 right now. So what evidence can clinicians turn to to direct their care in terms of nutrition intervention for these patients? Well, I'll start. Um, 
there are at least two recent meta-analyses on HMB, and I think that's a good starting point. I think the most significant study is the NURSE trial, which focused on malnourished patients with cardiopulmonary diseases. Obviously, it's a different model, um, but I, I think it demonstrates that we can increase muscle mass function and other important parameters. I'll be interested to hear what Dr. Mullen and Dr. Hagazi have to say on this point. Actually, with the NURSE trial, I feel that uh, the cardiopulmonary disease is one of the main comorbidities with this disease in an elderly population. So I think that if I was going to fashion a proposal to feed people, I would model it after the NURSE trial, quite honestly. I agree with that. Uh, And these patients do have cardiopulmonary issues. They have uh, worse outcomes. Yeah, so I think that would be a target population um, using, you know, high pro HMB. Right. It's not. It wasn't COVID per se, but certainly there's a lot of overlap in terms of their disease processes. Yes. Yes, I totally agree. And if you recall, Dr. Madry, it's uh, you were a co-author of the Norris trial uh, publication. Those were elderly malnourished patients with cardiopulmonary diseases. And if you look at the risk factors for uh, for acute uh, COVID-19, it's actually all of this, uh, all of these conditions, in addition to malnutrition and low albumin that has been popping up in the literature now as a, an independent risk factor for severity of the disease. So I think the process we're talking about is similar, which is inflammation-associated loss of muscle mass. This is yeah. which is really is the main issue that we're target, targeting here. Now you've each mentioned HMB or beta hydroxy beta methylbutyrate. So can you tell us about its mechanism of action and how HMB can be used to help patients in terms of muscle mass and outcome? Sure. So HMB, as you mentioned, it's a metabolite of the amino acid disease, and it has been in the literature for many decades. It actually started in the athletes, showing that improved muscle mass and decreased degradation. It has a couple of more mechanisms of action. For example, HMB um, is known to stimulate the mammalian target of rapamycin or mTOR, which leads to increased protein synthesis. So the net effect of HMB is you probably stimulate muscle protein synthesis and decrease muscle protein degradation. So since we have a combination of clinicians here with us today, can you tell us a little bit about how physicians and dietitians work together to optimize care for patients? Well, I'll start by saying communication is key, is absolutely essential, especially since at this point, we really do not know the best way to nourish these patients. We have lots of ideas, and these ideas are based on, you know, sound hypotheses and biochemistry and physiology. But I think um, communicating with the physician and the whole healthcare team is is really an important point. For me, I, I chair a nutrition advisory committee, which is multidisciplinary, and we receive really tremendous input and make policy changes once we engage a number of different specialties on the table. 
speech pathology, physical therapy, um, in particular dietitians. They are essential partners in patient care and in particular this population with COVID-19. It takes a tremendous amount of resources to care for these patients and the dietitians are really uh, assets for us. And I've found that since I was leading nutrition support team back in the 90s forward. And I think, you know, doctors and dietitians um, need to continue to partner to uh, impact patients' outcome. And the one thing I like to say, and maybe Rafak could speak to this, is that in our society, GI society, um, we've seen uh, a shift in the, the way the gastroenterologist perceives and their partners with the dietitian. And uh, I think, you know, there's a, a, a number of people who really um, forwarded that or, or pushed that effort. And I think that now we're seeing the uh, fruition of that in terms of partnering with dietitians, even on academia within our own field. And that, can, that ultimately is going to lead to more communication, as Laura said, and better outcomes for the patients because the doctors are now more mindful of nutrition and realize they need to partner with an expert in food-based therapies uh, to impact these outcomes. I totally agree with, uh, with Dr. Matteris and Dr. Monin. It's a multidisciplinary effort. And I, I recall our days at uh, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center when we had uh, the physician, uh, the dietitian, the pharmacist, the nurse practitioner, uh, the GI fellow, all part of one team addressing patients uh, for nutritional interventions and the best nutritional therapy. And it's amazing how every one of those specialties bring the unique uh, contribution to the team. At the end of the day, we're all for the best care for patients. And it's all this, everybody shine in. You know, the pharmacist will lead the TPN formulation and the IV fluids that the ends, ends and outs. Uh, the dietitian can take care of the whole comprehensive nutritional care. The physician will tie into the medical specialty and the medical disease of the patient. At the end of the day, this team is needed to promote proper nutrition and intervention. So with all of that said, what advice can each of you give to frontline clinicians who are caring for patients nutritionally? What one or two things can they do to really help their patients? Nutrition is a critical component of the care of these patients. So start early, use the gut whenever possible, correct any nutrient deficiencies, and make certain you have a plan for rehabilitation of these patients once they're discharged. I think that COVID-19 is a very uniquely aggressive condition like we've never seen before with a high mortality and a proclivity for what they call cytokine storm. And associate with that, we're becoming more and more aware that the gut is a primary area of attack. And those individuals who unfortunately suffer um, a GI manifestation of this condition um, have worse outcomes. So I think it provides all of us opportunities to promote early enteral nutrition of these individuals with COVID-19 associated GI manifestations, most notably enteropathy, uh, because unless you intervene early, uh, unfortunately, you can have a runaway train situation. And once you have a cytokine storm, 
the mortality is particularly high. So we haven't seen early enteral nutrition interventions on a clinical trial basis. I think you will see that happen, and I think you will see that there will be impacts on outcome, just like with the Abbott-sponsored ONS trial with Nourish that Laura and Dr. Hagazi have been speaking about with positive outcomes in terms of impact on 90-day mortality. I think you have a very similar population to intervene and a very strategic intervention, I think will have positive outcomes. I totally support exactly what uh, Dr. Mullen and Dr. Matteris have uh, started. Early intervention is the key. Early enteral nutrition is preferred because you're supporting the gut-associated lymphoid tissue when all the gut functions. And then optimize protein and calorie for those patients. And the EFFORT trial that was recently published in Lancet by Dr. Phil Schutz informed us and, and actually supported what we have seen also with the Norris trial, that early intervention, achieving calorie and protein uh, um, amounts required for, to support patients' nutrition early in the disease during hospital admission is associated with both decreased 30-day mortality and 30-day readmission. And this was even, uh, they, they even went and did a, publish a meta-analysis, and they published it in JAMA Open Access uh, very recently, showing the same thing. So early enteral protein and probably uh, in specific ingredients that can address muscle loss like HMD. Last question for you all. You've talked a bit about helpful resources, including the Nourish study. Um, that can help practitioners address this pandemic. Are there others you'd like to mention? The Aspen website does have broad-based strokes in terms of guidelines for feeding patients uh, during the pandemic. Uh, I would also add the Aspen website has some guidelines as well. So, um, and even various societies like the AGA have posted some guidelines, and that's what they are. They're guidelines because at this point we really don't have a lot of data. Um, and to add to that, I always go to the primary literature to see what's out there. And in the absence of any data on nutrition interventions, I, I think anything you do needs to be based on sound biochemical and physiological principles. Um, and the other thing I've done is I call colleagues to see what they're doing, you know, yeah, I, I totally agree, especially these days when a plethora of information pops every day, every minute on the Internet, and, and little evidence is probably supporting some of these claims or advices. So definitely a trusted resource, probably society guidelines, society websites, uh, esteemed experts in the field, um, and, and I think I would add to that that uh, Abbott Nutrition Health Institute also have hosted a lot of the authors uh, of the guidance uh, that was uh, published talking about nutritional management of COVID-19 patients and the uh, NHI.org. That's also a trusted resource I would recommend. Until we have the evidence, we have to rely on the expertise of our thought leaders. Well, this was excellent. Really great insights from each of you. And I really, truly want to thank you all so much because we really appreciate all you're doing to help build awareness for the important role nutrition has to play in the management of patients with this virus. So thank you all. And I hope you'll join us again sometime. Yes.
very much so. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much, uh, Jerry and Laura. Awesome, sure. awesome insights. Now, for our listeners, if you're hoping for more podcast episodes on nutrition and immunity, we've developed a robust series of additional episodes to help support you. In fact, we have a host of COVID-19-related episodes that are already on our website, and we'll continue to add to that episode list each week until this virus begins to subside. You can find these recordings on anhi.org by clicking Resources and then Podcasts and Videos. These recordings are incredibly insightful, so make sure you don't miss an episode. Become an ANHI.org member today by clicking register on the top of our homepage. And by doing that, you'll receive regular nutrition science news updates from our team. And you can also follow the Abbott Nutrition Health Institute on LinkedIn, where we publish posts every day. And finally, on our website, ANHI.org has a series of printable resources that are related to this topic. So, for instance, uh, infographics on nutrition and immunity, dehydration, and why maintaining muscle matters. You can find these resources on anhi.org by clicking resources and printable materials. Thanks, everyone. Stay healthy and safe.